Billy Graham's passing to his eternal reward certainly prompts us to pray for more leaders in this world and in the church recognized for their statesman qualities. As for his success in evangelism, Graham was a leader without equal. I've very much enjoyed all of the articles and videos reviewing his long career, his scandal-free life, his moral integrity. The question is, will anybody emerge on the world stage to match the stature of a Billy Graham? There have been many prophetic words that Graham's mantle will be shared by his children, grandchildren, and masses of other evangelists. But today, let's consider what it takes for God to produce a world-class man or woman of God. Tried and true, elder statesmen are needed more than ever. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The Billy Graham era has been described as evangelism at its very best. Billy Graham was especially gifted with a statesman anointing that enabled doors to open for the gospel and walls of opposition to fall all over the world. Without compromising his convictions, he projected a confident gospel that was amazingly winsome, yet he never shied from confronting the controversial issues of the day. Not only are such men desperately needed to rise up in the churches, but we also need bold and godly men in the public sphere of our nations. An elder statesman is defined as a skilled, experienced, and respected political leader or religious figure. He or she a person who exhibits great wisdom and ability in directing the affairs of governments or in dealing with important public issues due to their wisdom and integrity, worthy of respect. Well, recently I watched the film Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill's struggle to save his nation from Nazi invasion. The film was also a timely reminder of the parallels between Churchill and Trump, two flawed, immensely talented men with many personal foibles, yet they have in common the ability to recognize peril. The film treated us to some of Churchill's clever quips, but one of the best lines in the film summarized the gravity of the situation and how, as Churchill shouted, the British were going to have to Learn your minds in this grave hour. The film speaks prophetically to our generation because we must learn our minds in this grave hour to overcome dark forces and Trojan horses. We must rise up to reclaim lost ground. No doubt Winston Churchill was the greatest statesman of the 20th century and perhaps in history. He said he had nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat, and his vow, we shall fight on the beaches, and his praise of the pilots in the Battle of Britain, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Such oratory 
rallied the British nation in its darkest hour against truly terrifying threats and odds from the advancing Nazi machine. Well, Churchill was no saint, yet God gifted him with oratory and prophetic vision to mobilize the nation. The Academy Award-winning film illustrated the terrible pressure that the 65-year-old Prime Minister felt as he took on the leadership of the beleaguered nation, while the Foreign Minister, Lord Halifax, relentlessly pushed for negotiations of appeasement with Hitler. It was a bitter struggle requiring deep convictions, but thankfully Churchill refused to be a puppet for Hitler. Only 18 days into office as Prime Minister, he argued that nations which went down fighting rose again, but those that surrendered tamely were finished. Britain needed a Churchill to survive, somebody who would shout defiantly, never surrender. As an elder statesman, Churchill could see the bigger picture because he possessed both the mind of an historian and the courage of a soldier. He could recognize patterns of the past being repeated in the present. He was able to see so clearly that Hitler's advances could not be left unchecked. Well, at the time, Churchill was derided as a warmonger. Yet today, he's celebrated for his foresight and wisdom. I discovered the late professor, Dr. J. Rufus Fears at the University of Oklahoma. He was an American historian who taught that a mere politician and a statesman are certainly not on the same level. Dr. Fear said that a statesman is never a tyrant. A statesman is the free leader of a free people with at least four critical qualities. And I believe these qualities are also necessary for an elder statesman in the church. Number one, he must have a foundational bedrock of principles. And secondly, he must have a moral compass, something that's so lacking today in so many leaders. Thirdly, he must have a vision. And number four, he must be gifted with the ability to achieve his vision. I'm increasingly praying for the Lord to raise up tried and true statesmen in the churches who can speak to our generation both inside and outside the walls of the churches. So to the four qualities I've just mentioned, I would add at least three more qualities that are vitally necessary. So number five, an elder statesman in the church, it should go without saying, must be a man or a woman of habitual prayer and able to take directions directly from our commander-in-chief, the Lord himself. A good example of this is when Billy Graham, after being an effective world evangelist for so many years, was challenged by the Lord to take the gospel behind the Iron Curtain. I remember at the time how many people criticized him, saying that he would be used as a puppet by the communist. Yet, Billy Graham said, he had heard from God and he was willing to take the risk of his reputation for the Lord's sake and for the sake of the gospel. The result of his many trips to communist nations, the former Soviet Union, Poland, Romania, Hungary, East Germany, 
was that communism was undermined by his visits. Graham and his team created many fissures in the walls of communism, which eventually collapsed. Now, number six, a statesman anointing must include the God-given skill of faith-based diplomacy. That's the ability to reach out to others who don't believe the gospel and to paint a positive picture of the move of God. Billy Graham was able to do this skillfully, even with the communist leaders, when he penetrated the Iron Curtain. Faith-based diplomacy requires that we be able to see the bigger picture and to be a long-term strategist for the kingdom of God. Faith-based diplomacy is an anointing to build bridges that will tear down walls and barriers and convince leaders, politicians, kings to open wide their gates to the kingdom of God. Often people who are engaged in faith-based diplomacy are criticized by others within the churches who are narrow-minded and legalists. They simply can't see the bigger picture of what the minister is setting out to accomplish under the Lord's sovereign direction. But in Billy Graham's case, the wisdom of his methods was justified by the outcome. And after all, he never preached politics anyway. He had only one message throughout his career, and that was God's love for the world demonstrated at the cross. The seventh qualification of a statesman anointing is genuine humility. Humility is a key and a major hallmark, and perhaps the main reason why God is able to use a man or a woman of God so mightily. At the time of Billy Graham's death, the one word that everyone most often used to describe him was humility. Whether it came from members of his family, from a former president of the United States, or from his co-workers, humility was how they described him best. It's amazing that he never became puffed up over all of his success and opportunities. But humility was one of the great secrets to his success. Graham always said, my one purpose in life is to help people find a personal relationship with God, which he believed came through knowing Jesus the Messiah. He received so many honors without it going to his head. The Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Gold Medal in 1996 held jointly with his wife, Ruth. Graham even received an honorary British knighthood that means technically he became Sir Billy. He also had numerous honorary doctorates, yet he always just remained Billy Graham, the country boy from North Carolina. He was history's most traveled evangelist, and he was on Gallup's list of the most admired persons 61 times more than any man or woman in history. In fact, Billy Graham had multifaceted layers of achievement in his ministry that looked to me like a beautiful multi-layered cake. One layer was the faithful husband of one wife and the father of five children. Another was, of course, mass evangelism. Another layer to his ministry was the media. And another was the power of the pen. Then there was the art of faith-based diplomacy. And on top of all of that, Besides being God's ambassador, he was throughout his long career the pastor and spiritual counselor and prayer partner, really, 
two presidents and monarchs. Graham provided spiritual counsel for every president from the 33rd president, Harry S. Truman, to the 44th president, Barack Obama. Also, he achieved so much in civil rights that we don't want to take for granted or to forget the role that Billy Graham played. He went against the tide. He insisted on racial integration for his revivals and campaigns. And he invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to preach jointly at a revival in New York City. In the 1960s, Graham bailed Dr. King out of jail when King was arrested during demonstrations for civil rights. Billy Graham simply confronted the ugliness of racism by personally removing barriers himself, barriers that, so that he could integrate the seating in the stadiums where he preached. Both he and his successor, his son Franklin Graham, defended marriage also as one man and one woman. And rather than ignore the issue of abortion, Billy emphasized upholding the sanctity of life. I recall when television evangelist Jim Baker was sent to jail in 1989 for various scandals that he was despised in the body of Messiah and treated like a pariah. But I also recall the generosity of spirit of Billy Graham. He wasn't ashamed to visit Jim Baker in prison, to pray with him, and to help to bring about his restoration. Well, something that comes to mind when discussing the impact of how great leaders and how desperately we need them today is a story associated with the 19th century preacher, Dwight L. Moody. Moody was an American evangelist who, like Billy Graham, successfully preached in England. During one of Mr. Moody's early visits to England, a friend happened to say to him, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Well, that statement made such a deep impression upon Mr. Moody that he vowed, by God's help, I'm going to be that man. And Moody certainly impacted his generation. And I think it's safe to say that in our time, through the life of Billy Graham, the world has seen what God can do with a man who was fully consecrated to the Lord. In 2005, Billy Graham held his final gospel campaign in New York City. Through the years, he had held more than 400 gospel campaigns across six continents. And in his six decades of television, Graham hosted annual Billy Graham Crusades, which made quite an impact on my life as I was growing up in the lives of countless others. He helped to shape the worldview of a huge number of people who came from very diverse backgrounds. And he led them to find a relationship between the Bible and contemporary secular viewpoints. According to his website, Graham preached in more than 185 countries and territories through various meetings and global missions. And according to his staff, more than 3.2 million people have responded to Billy's invitation to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. One estimate of his lifetime audience, including radio and television broadcasts, topped more than 2 billion souls. 
I want to emphasize how important it is to pray for the spouses of great men and women of God. All who knew him said that Billy Graham never could have succeeded the way he did without the help and counsel of his wise and cooperative life partner, his wife, Ruth, who was a missionary daughter. She grew up in China. Other men of God who truly exhibit a statesman anointing are the Christian Broadcasting Network founder, Pat Robertson, and evangelist Reinhard Bonke, whose phenomenal success in Africa can be attributed to the same qualities we've listed in this program. And also, both of these spiritual giants, Robertson and Bonke, were blessed with godly and stable life partners. He was never regarded by the Africans as somebody who represented a white man's religion. Like Billy Graham, Reinhard Bonke knew that Christianity is not a white man's religion, that Jesus belongs to the entire world. Doors in African parliaments and private counseling sessions with presidents always opened for Reinhardt because the leaders knew of his integrity and scandal-free life and his great gospel career. Reinhardt would often quip to his team when he was invited to speak in the parliament, no protocol, alter call. By that he meant that even though he was careful to observe the manners of proper protocol, nevertheless he would also never miss the opportunity to share the gospel and to pray with leaders. The phenomenal success of Reinhard Bonke with his crowds as vast as the eye could see and his decades-long career in length similar to Billy Graham should make us rejoice for God in the kingdom of God that the world has seen what can be achieved by another consecrated man of God. But it also makes us cry out to see more men of his caliber. And women of God can also become stateswomen for the Lord. I know a lot of people will disagree with me on this issue, but Reinhard Bonke once wisely said that he was asked why he allowed women to preach the gospel, and he replied, Evangelism is an emergency operation, and we're all called to engage in it. He said, If I as a man would drown in a river, I wouldn't care if a woman or a man threw me a lifeline. He said, rather win a soul than win an argument. So Ruth Heflin of blessed memory comes to my mind. She came from the same hometown as me in the American state of Virginia. And she was a missionary who carried a stateswoman anointing. As she traveled the world, she often had words to share with kings and leaders. She ministered prophetically to Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia and to the royal family of Nepal before the monarchy was abolished in Nepal. Only God can open doors to leaders and he uses seasoned ministers to speak into their lives because after all, leadership can be very lonely. And so God sends his prophets and statesmen to them with warnings and encouragements and counsel. Well, in the Bible, the prophet Daniel was a prime example of a believer who developed a statesman anointing. I find it infinitely fascinating as I study the book of Daniel that he was one of a handful of mighty men in the Hebrew scriptures mentioned as a righteous intercessor. Men such as Moses, Samuel, Noah, and Job are mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures as those to whom God would lend his ear in times of crises. 
concerning the certainty of the Lord's judgment against a sinful nation, in Ezekiel chapter 14, we have this passage where God says, Son of man, suppose the people of a country were to be unfaithful and sin against me, and I stretch out my hand against it to punish it. God said, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their righteousness would save no one but themselves, says the sovereign Lord. How did he become so great? Humility was the hallmark of Daniel's life. When asked to unravel a mystery for the Babylonian king, this secret, Daniel said, is not revealed to me because of my wisdom. He gave all the credit to the God of Israel, who is the revealer of secrets. In fact, when you observe the modus operandi of the genuine messenger of truth, you'll notice that they continually have a reflex of diverting attention away from themselves and onto the Lord. Billy Graham always turned the conversation away from himself and onto the Lord. Like John the Baptist, the true man of God or woman of God says, I must decrease so the Lord may increase. Well, I'm going to mention some more of Daniel's important characteristics. He was absolutely unwilling to compromise what he believed were the laws of God. Many men and women of God have paid immense prices to stand their ground and not compromise, no matter what the cost, even if it means they'll lose their lives. But Daniel and his friends were determined as captives in Babylon not to allow the Chaldeans to brainwash them. God was foremost in his mind before anybody or anything else. He was single-minded, and I'm praying for such resolve amongst the younger generation today. When he and his companions were taken captive from Judea to Babylon, their names were changed to pagan Chaldean names. It's a shame, really, that we tend to remember the pagan names of Daniel's friends, memorialized in song, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rather than their godly Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because the Chaldean names called upon Babylonian deities, even though their names were legally changed by the Chaldeans, there was nothing they could do about that as captives. But nevertheless, and this is so important, they refused to change their lifestyle of prayer habits and dietary laws. Daniel made up his mind that he wouldn't defile himself at the king's table. And he prayed three times a day at his window toward Jerusalem, keeping himself focused on the God of Israel. Daniel exhibited the level of strong character of a statesman who can stand boldly in front of kings, rulers, and politicians and speak the truth to say, thus saith the Lord. The prophet Ezekiel said this kind of attitude was like setting your face like flint. And there's an interesting verse in 1 Chronicles 12, 8, which describes this kind of attitude as setting your face like a lion. Well, Daniel had great intelligence and an excellent spirit within him, as well as the indwelling of the divine spirit. He set such a great example for all of us in our generation because he decided to pray intelligently according to God's word. You see, he had a scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, which gave the length of Jewish captivity in Babylon, 70 years. And I wonder why preachers today don't study 
our Bibles like Daniel did to understand the end times in which we're privileged to live. The Bible very clearly tells us that the Jewish people would be restored to their own land in the Middle East in the last days. In the past centuries, believers saw these prophecies beginning to come to pass and they prayed into them. But now, why aren't the majority of pastors seeing these things about Jerusalem and the alignment of nations in the Middle East, according to Ezekiel 38, happening before our eyes? Why are they not praying and fasting like Daniel did? You see, Daniel prayed earnestly for prophecy to come to pass because he said to God, Thy city, thy city Jerusalem, and thy people are called by thy name. Yes, his people had sinned, but he pled the promises of a covenant-keeping God. The Jewish people were still his people, and they were named by the name of the God of Israel. Daniel's hope rested on the prophecy that the 70 years of captivity were almost accomplished. And now we've come to the time when Israel has been reestablished for 70 years. In Daniel chapter 9, he cries, O Lord, to us belongs confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But although we have rebelled against the Lord our God, we plead your mercy and forgiveness. So as an intercessor, Daniel earnestly sought God with humiliation, fasting, and prayer. He wasn't just a prophet. He was foremost an intercessor. How important, if at all possible, that we begin to serve God when we're young also, as Daniel was. The ministers I've mentioned in this program began to serve God in their youth. Bible scholars say that Daniel was probably about 14 years old when he and his companions were sent into exile to be educated at the College of the Chaldeans. Ecclesiastes 12.1 declares, Remember thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Otherwise, troublesome days will come and years will creep up on you when you'll suddenly say, I just don't enjoy life anymore. But Billy Graham, who served God from his youth, once said that if he had his life to live all over again, he would emphasize more often in his preaching the cost of discipleship. After all, some of the greatest statesmen in the history of the church paid with their lives for the truth they carried. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, anti-Nazi dissident, and 20th century martyr, defined the era of what he called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer said cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, without requiring baptism or church discipline. It's receiving Holy Communion without personal confession. You see, the gospel requires that we repent of our sins and that we be discipled in the principles and precepts of this word of God. So I hope that you're being discipled and I want you to feel free to contact me with any questions on the social media or through our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our weekly updates and our electronic newsletter called Exploits. And don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel app. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark, Maranatha, 
and shalom.